The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge standing in for um, Mary um, and I've got to get that jingle changed I think, right Mary? Yes. Um, Today I've got Mary Olson with me as um, a guest um, for the show. Mary's an international lecturer in the fields of communication and family therapy. She's both a social worker and a um, PhD. Was that in social work? Actually, uh, communication. Communications. And Mary's adjunct associate professor at Smith College School um, for social work and an affiliate of Massachusetts Memorial Medical School. Mary's been a Fulbright professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of, please help me here. Yavaskala. Yavaskala, okay, yeah. that, which is in Finland. And on our website it says, and other universities in Finland, um, which helps us because of the pronunciation, um, as well as Italy and the U.S. Um, Mary has served as the director of um, the Clinical Externship in Systemic Family Therapies, in um, the Berkshire Medical Center and has published numerous times in the open dialogue approach, which is an approach that I want to talk about today, um, and training in network and language-based therapies, eating disorders, treatment, and effects of managed care. Um, Mary also has a private psychotherapy and consultation practice and also offers seminars teaching open dialogues approach, right? Yes. So welcome. Hi. Hi. So um, I first met Mary, um, I only met Mary once, um, down at the INTAR conference, um, which was a very exciting conference, and we've had a number of guests um, recently from there. Um, and um, it was, it's the International Network of Treatment Alternatives in Recovery. And Mary was giving a talk on open dialogues along with uh, Jaco Saikula? Saikula. Saikula. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, so... Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, what is Open Dialogues? Tell me a little bit about what this approach means. Well, Open Dialogue is an approach that was developed at Karaputis Hospital, which is a hospital in north, the northwest corner of Finland um, on the Swedish border. Mm-hmm. And it's, an, it's a network-based approach that they developed there. Um, to work with acute psychiatric crises. Yeah. When they first went into this hospital about 30 years ago now, it was a chronic facility. Uh, and during that time, there was a uh, movement in Finland to transform the psychiatric system under a concept called need-adapted care. Okay. And so 
they began to introduce a more community-based approach uh, to working with um, people who had psychiatric diagnoses. And um, so Yako Sekula, who is my um, research partner, mm-hmm. is one of the main developers of the Open Dialogue Approach, and he was hired in the early 80s um, as a young psychologist, and he was trained as a family therapist. And he went into this, you know, chronic facility that was basically a closed system. And he and his group, including a psychiatrist named Birgitta Alakara and other team members that they uh, formed, worked to transform this chronic facility into a modern acute facility. Mm-hmm. And um, they were trained in family therapy, specifically in Milan systemic therapy, and they began to try to bring these ideas into the hospital setting. So, Mary, this is part of a really massive overhaul of the healthcare system in Finland. Exactly. And, and a shift from in the care of psychiatric um, patients from asylum-based, old-fashioned sort of asylum-based mental institutions um, into more um, distributed care, community-based care, and really trying to overhaul. Was the, what was the idea between this needs-adapted care? Yeah. Well, the need-adapted care, is, it's similar in a way to what we have done here um, in the wraparound approach. There's a similar impulse, which is to try to adapt treatment to the needs of the patient and the family rather than inserting people into a pre-existing menu of services. Okay. So, so it was an experimental atmosphere that was trying to introduce more of a psychosocial component. Mm-hmm. And so long story short, they um, began to try to do family therapy, and they found that an, this office-based family therapy model didn't work in the psychiatric hospital. And so they began to really kind of experiment with different ideas, and they began to um, use what's called a a treatment meeting. And the treatment meeting is really a network meeting that was developed in a different part of Finland, but they brought the idea there. And what that meant was they started every admission to the hospital by bringing in um, all the professionals who were attached to the situation and the family members and anybody else involved in the crisis. So they shifted from first asylum-based treatment, and then they tried to do family therapy. And then they shifted to really this network-based approach. And that has a different idea. It's more of a community-based approach than an office model. Yeah. And it was an attempt to integrate the treatment system as well as providing a more of a humanistic focus I tried to understand the crisis from the point of view of the people going through it rather than a highly medicalized approach. Okay, so really one of the, one of the, terrible, um, one of the many terrible aspects of um, the old, older-fashioned institution and asylum-based approaches was the dehumanization um, and warehousing of um, people. Exactly. Um, and you really did lose their personal narrative in the story. It became... 
and, and, and the psychiatrist, I think, that were trained within that era um, also lost some of the nuance of what was happening for the um, for the people going through those experiences and started talking in terms, you know, really making use of symptoms and signs and then treating that with pharmacological approaches. Exactly. Uh, and so this, what you're describing is really turning that on its head and saying, hold on a minute, let's look from the personal experience of the um, participant. In Westbridge, we use the word participant because we ask the um, clients and their families to actively participate and lead the treatment um, process. So I, I, I tend to use the word participants as I speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, really focus on the, the participants' experience um, and bring in the whole care network um, right from the get-go. Exactly. And the idea in, with the treatment meeting was to um, begin to try to understand what happened and create a common understanding among all the providers and the participants so that people weren't working at cross-purposes. Um, one of the things that happens in the U.S. is that our treatment a, a system tends to get become very fragmented with people having very different ideas, often working in isolation with the same participants. Absolutely. And so, you know, the first, there were a number of <clears throat> aims that they had at the beginning, but one was to make the um, work with people more community-based and less institutional to enter to, and also to try to coordinate the responses of all the helpers who were working with the participants so that you had a coherent helping system and not one where people were, where there was a lot of tension among the helpers with different points of view, working sometimes in very different ways and in, with different goals. Okay, so this is interesting. So one of the reasons why it wasn't working to translate the family therapy approach from the individual, from the office-based practice to the hospital systems was because it wasn't influencing the other um, models, explanatory models and approaches that the other treaters would have. And so uh, the the approach would kind of get diluted and lost. Is that Exactly. That that's exactly right. So it really started as this kind of um, approach about it, about how you approach it in the sense that let's all we you know we may all come from different backgrounds have different perspectives there may be different points of view within the among the participants who are going through the crisis but let's try to at least voice everyone has a voice everyone contributes to try to understand what's going on and let's see if we can develop some common purpose here and, with, and most importantly, in a way that empowers the person who's at the center of concern. And so then this brings in kind of their philosophical value, which is that the participants are not objects of therapeutic action, but they're partners in a process. They're treated from the beginning. They're um, viewed from the beginning not as, you know, objects that we intervene with, but as human beings who have a point of view and are competent partners in a recovery process. So um, if, I mean, one of the problems that often occurs 
you'll have to help me flesh this out. But one of the problems that often occurs in psychotic crisis is the participant loses their the, the ability to make their point of view cohe- coherently. Yeah. And um, that voice gets lost. And then I think the system helps it get lost because um, the... You know, we call it a thought disorder and stop listening. Um, exactly. And the family starts listening and, uh, and the family throws up their hands. Um, and um, the, I guess it, it aids and abets the um, communication problems um, get worse and worse so that the person feels more and more isolated. So is that, but, but, but I think, you know, family therapies have such a rich tradition of trying to understand that, right? Exactly. And that's, that's where the, the emphasis on open dialogue comes in that, and this I think is, is one of the more original pieces is that Yako Sekula really is the one who focused a lot on this idea that in the crisis situation, your first aim is to establish a communicative relationship with the person who's at the center of the crisis and to create a sense of safety and to take a, a very respectful stance. And the first order of business is to try to bring that person into a conversation and slowly help them develop a language in which they can have a voice. And so this idea of dialogue is this very meticulous back and forth. If you sit in on one of these meetings with somebody who may come in and who's very difficult to understand, but this is where watching uh, Yaku Sekula work is very interesting because there's a very meticulous kind of weaving back and forth. And by the end, he is really assisting that person in making themselves understandable to the others present. Okay. Um, I, it, we've packed an awful lot of complicated ideas into this brief few minutes. I look forward to coming back after a short break. Okay. <laughs> send them out there. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Listen for the right turn with J.J. O'Malley. It's an insider's look at America's fastest-growing motorsport series, the Grand Am Rolex Sports Car Series, presented by Crown Royal Cask Number 16. You'll hear about what happened last weekend and get a preview of what's coming up next. From the Rolex 24 at Daytona, through Watkins Glen International, Mid-Ohio, Laguna Seca, right up to the championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. The Right Turn with J.J. O'Malley, broadcast live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. It's Mark Green sitting in with Mary Olson, um, our guest. Hey, Mary, you were, we were talking just before about the break about many different um, topics, but I wanted to go back and just clarify a couple of things. Okay. So, um, you know, we were talking about how, um, how in psychotic episodes, um, people's language gets more, um, can get looser. You know, mm. in, in psychiatry we talk about um, how, um, you know, usual speech follows from topic to topic to topic, and it doesn't have to be really boring and linear. Mm-hmm. It's more flowery and, and um, metaphorical. But if it gets too loose, you lose your grasp on the, on the content, and it becomes ununderstand. You can't understand it. Right. And we talk about that as a thought disorder, and it's one of the sort of main problems in um, psychotic episodes as people's thoughts get a little bit more incoherent. Yeah. Um, and um, you were mentioning how that, um, and I think that can have a really insidious effect on, on people's sense of isolation, um, exactly. alienation from people, and it can look just, just look very odd, um, and especially if you're not attuned. I think, you know, I... Um, I think I've worked with a lot of people early, early on um, who had um, aphasias and mm-hmm. um, language difficulties, and I think it helped me loosen up my ear a bit so that mm-hmm. I could um, read between the lines a bit more. But, mm-hmm. you were to, but, you, but for many, I think it's very difficult to understand. You were saying how um, Yako's cycler, cycler, yeah. good, thanks, um, would slowly help them develop a language to communicate within, mm-hmm. within the session. Could you Tell us a little bit about that process and how that happens. Yeah, um, well, you know, it's it, the idea um, in this network-based, language-based approach is that the, and, and this is, I, I realize that this is not, not a, a view that everyone is going to agree with, but their point of view is that in um, a psychotic crisis, what they've noticed is that um, the the person who is going through that has often very terrible experiences that they aren't able to find words for, that they um, don't know how to express. And they've proposed this notion that hallucinations or um, other kinds of um, expressions of this distress represent um, the body's voice in the absence of having 
actual words to express and communicate and be heard in terms of these very difficult experiences. And what they've noticed in working with people, especially if they can work with them um, in the in at the beginning of the crisis, you know that there's a lot of evidence that the longer someone stays in this kind of state with hallucinations and and delusions, that the longer they'll remain in that state. So there's a lot of emphasis on immediate help. But what they've noticed is if they can um, begin to work with the person, and this is why having other people there who are supportive but also know what's going on can help to make sense of this experience and slowly begin to develop a narrative. And, you know, if you're biologically oriented, I guess you could say, you know, activating the language Capacities of the of the mind. That that so seems an interesting distinction. I want to. Uh, you, you you're talking about. Well, firstly, you're talking about some kind of psychological trauma model for the onset of psychosis, um, which you know. But I'm not sure if you're saying that it has to be a very um, dramatic trauma or just something which is experienced as as just very difficult and conflictual for the person. I think it. I, I think we don't know the answer to that. I think that there. That um, I, I like. You know. Again, I, I don't. You know. I don't think we know this. I, I think if we don't, um, you know, acknowledge kind of the limits of our knowledge, we can get into trouble. I think for some people who come in with psychotic expressions, they may have a background of trauma, and others, you know, maybe that is just extremely difficult to process. Yeah. Um, so. You know, there's a kind, there's there's a kind of um, almost like ideological agnosticism in the Finns. They're not really saying that these processes cause mm-hmm. um, these, you know, these kinds of quote psychotic expressions, but they're they're looking for sort of patterns that connect. That they see that we really don't know we really don't know what the cause is, but we do know that there are certain things that seem pragmatically to help, that if you can begin to help someone articulate in an, in narrative form what they're going through, that that seems to um, reduce, you know, these otherwise um, uh, more difficult to comprehend ways of expressing their yeah, experiences. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's interesting because... Um you know, family therapy took a knock um, after and then there was some interesting models around the double bind and very powerful, provocative and influential models. But um, I think, I don't know if it got interpreted as a bit of a straw man set up, you know, as something which, uh, you know, this idea of the schizophrenogenic mother. Um, yeah. It became a bit of a straw man where, you know, family therapy was chided consistently and saying, oh, you're just blaming the mother. Exactly. Uh, but it felt to me, it feels to me in, in as I look back on, you know, the last few decades, um, that um, biological psychiatry may have been saying that a little bit too often, um, and I'm not sure that was the pervasive idea in family therapy. But um, this sounds like um, there's a bit more agnosticism and carefulness about that, saying, look, we're not saying that there's some big underlying trauma in everybody, but paying attention to the personal experience which permits the immersion of um, the emergence of a of, of a personal narrative and a dialogue. Right? Exactly, and and the other you know the other piece, which is um, you know borne out throughout all the research, is that reducing isolation produces a better trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so, 
you know, the impulse here is not so much to ascertain the cause, you know, what is the experience that caused this to happen, but to um, create an environment where the person can express themselves and, and feel and feel a sense of human connection. And that reduces the terror that they're feeling. Um, it reduces their anxiety. And therefore, they're less symptomatic. So, yeah, one of the most awful parts about um, any mental illness is the sense of alienation that you can have from other people and the uh, loss of the capacity to love almost. Exactly. And, um, and that can certainly happen so much in um, psychotic illnesses and was made so much worse by um, institutionalization. You know, I want to hold you back from continuing just one second because sure. you also mentioned um, that the, the, the Finnish group and, and yourself think of this as almost the body's voice and you're trying to reteach um, the, uh, a language um, for effective communication. Um, I might have misheard you, but... You, were you saying something along those lines? Yeah, I mean, what what the Finns would say? I mean, this, you know, again, they 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 hold the, these ideas somewhat lightly. I think they or they hold theory somewhat lightly. They don't have a uniform theory of psychosis, and um, and in fact, the psychiatrist who was um, the main administrator of the hospital during the most creative years of the development of open dialogue was himself a biological psychiatrist. So they're able to hold different perspectives. But that said, I think what Yako would say is that um, psych- the psych- a psychotic experience is a no-man's land. You know, you feel this sort of terrifying sense of alienation. And um, I don't want to say this, that this is a, a sort of a causal relationship, but at the same time that you feel this terrible sense of disconnection and having no voice and no no ability to be heard or express yourself. The idea is that at the same time, these hallucinations and um, other kinds of, you know, quote, psychotic expressions um, are signs from the body of uh, experiences that have no expression. I think that's what they would say, something like that. But that they're meaningful. I, I think the, the the point is this is sort of a um, you know a, a highly philosophical way of saying that without knowing it precisely the meaning or even the cause of psychosis, um, there's a stance that these experiences are meaningful. Right. Okay. We shouldn't get too lost in the thicket here. Right. <laughs> and and uh, so. So you were you were starting you were talking about some of the central tenets and the philosophical approaches, but um, so how how do you begin to help someone find their voice again in the in the in the network? Well, I mean, I you know, you know, I can, um, it, you know, it's a subtle process, and um, the best way to to understand it is to participate in one of these meetings. But, you know, I did sit in on a, um, on one of these meetings when I was in Finland and I watched firsthand, even though it was conducted in Finnish, um, there were, uh, the, the nurses and the psychiatrist and even one of the, um, the significant other of the person who was at the center of it, were, they were translating it in English. 
And I can describe this if you want me to, to try to give you a sense of how, what this would look like in, in, in practice. I think that might be interesting. Yeah. Okay. So this was a, um, a situation where there was a young woman who had come from another part of Finland and had come from a very, very abusive family and really had no one except um, a boyfriend that she was going to live with. And she came in to the emergency room at the request of her outpatient therapist who was um, extremely worried about her because her speech was becoming incoherent and at the same time she was expressing a wish to die. So she was referred to the Open Dialogue team and uh, Birgitta Alakara, who's one of the developers and is a psychiatrist, um, and a nurse from the outpatient clinic, her, or actually her therapist from the outpatient clinic, a nurse from the inpatient clinic, um, this young woman and her partner and myself were all convened um, within 24 hours of the initial call to meet with her. And she... Um, you know, when I walked in, she was this, you know, pale, um, you know, blonde-haired young woman sitting in a white parka with no color in her face. I mean, she looked f- totally fragile like a snowflake. Dead. And what? I'm and dead. Yeah, and she was just, you know, she just, she wasn't there. I mean, it seemed as if she was really... Okay, are we are we done? Um, we're coming. We've got a couple more seconds. Oh, okay, um, so um, so I can, we can complete this after the um, okay. the break. Okay, I'm describing someone with a very marked, fearful. We call we we might say uh, you know a depression or um, a psychotic depression or exactly a psychotic episode. Okay, yeah. let's come back and hear hear how you guys help. Okay. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network.
This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to The Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, welcome back. It's Mark Green, Medical Director at Westbridge. I'm talking with Mary Olson about Open Dialogues. Mary, you gave us a um, brief description of someone who was just coming in, and it's amazing that they saw you guys saw this um, person within 24 hours. It's also interesting that they were referred to the Open Dialogues team rather than to a specialist psychiatrist or to a, you know, um, so it must have been that the community is very well acquainted with this kind of approach. Exactly, but, yeah. They they know this approach well. Yeah, and they obviously they obviously like it. Uh, yeah, obviously goes well with uh, for them. We'll talk a bit about outcomes um, later. But tell us what give us a sense, a flavor, if you can, of, of what, what happened. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, so this young couple is sitting there, and you know, as I said, I didn't catch everything because you know they were translating back and forth, um, uh, but they were speaking Finnish, and but the. Um, but but the person who, the interviewer, who happened to be the psychiatrist, doesn't have to be the, the team psychiatrist, but she was taking the lead, started with, um, uh, started, started by asking each person there, you know, their idea of, of what the situation was. And, you know, at first this young woman was very reluctant to speak, as was her partner, but so the... Um, the therapist and the outpatient nurse began to talk about the situation and talk about their concern and that she had been saying that, you know, she felt like she didn't want to live anymore. And and yet there was a very kind of slow and respectful tone. And it, I felt actually very calm in this meeting. And it felt um, it felt different than, than the family therapy meetings um, I often am part of. In any event, I'm not sure what exactly the ingredient was, but at some point the young man who was this young woman's partner and boyfriend began speaking. And he was very, very, he was also a nurse, and he spoke English very well. And he was translating for me, and he was describing his concern. And then out of nowhere, it seemed, he suddenly said that he, when he uh, drank, which was often on the weekends, he became violent and he beat her. And the minute that he said that, she all of a sudden seemed to come back into the room and suddenly uh, became much more able to talk and to communicate because there was some piece of the situation that was important to be said that had been said. And even though, you know, he's um, giving this, you know, uh, really damaging information about himself, it was it was really important that he was able to say that. And so that shifted the whole thing. And one of the questions that the psychiatrist asked to 
to the young girl is what's more um, dangerous, you know, your desire to kill yourself or his, what he's doing to you with this abuse. What, what's, what's the more dangerous problem? And she said, you know, what he's doing to me. So here's this young woman who has no one in the world except this boyfriend who's essentially um, getting drunk and beating her and therefore betraying the relationship when, when otherwise he's a nurse and he's this caretaker of the first order of magnitude. So you sort of see her dilemma is right there. And just seeing that dilemma allowed her, the fact that everybody validated that dilemma then allowed her to begin to express herself. And watching this, it was really remarkable to me how her her feeling changed, her expression, even the color in her face came back. And this was a situation then that the team could begin to work with. And Well, the, the, the interesting thing as well is um, she didn't have to... Um tell on him right um, exactly he, he offered it up and showed that he cared enough about her and the relationship to say this is a problem that i'm offering myself up uh, off telling myself exactly uh, that's been very validating and relieving for her yeah exactly and you know even though here's an example of you know this this horrible abusive situation that's going on on the other hand now other you know just by virtue of the fact that she's not alone in it any anymore, she's much safer. And, you know, again, here's this dialogical approach where, you know, this if, if her partner had not been here at this point in the crisis, it's unlikely we, she would have given him up or sort of told on him. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's startlingly true that most care of um, people with psychotic illnesses is done in isolation from the family. And um, it's, it's, it's impossible. The more I work with families, the more I realize it's ridiculous um, not to. Um, you can't really understand what's going on. You can't begin to make um, alliances and um, help the family become more supportive. But before that, you can't begin to understand the communications that are occurring and, you know, and, and the circumstances through which the person's trying to... The, the circumstances the person's been in. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's really, so, just to add one more piece to this, and, but, yeah. you know, it, it, but one of the differences there, because it's a well-funded system, is that the, the therapist can work in teams, and they don't assume just, just having this kind of conversation is enough to do if somebody's really, really in trouble. So, you know, they have, they, their plan would be, um, if they think that she can be safe outside of a secure setting, would be to meet with this couple every single day until she's out of danger. If they feel that even though, you know, she's engaging with them, but still, you know, this impulse um, not to live is larger than she is and that she's not safe, they would put her in an inpatient unit, but they would continue these kinds of conversations. They wouldn't just, what we do here, sadly, is, you know, we put people on inpatient units and medicate them and say, well, we'll talk with them when they clear. Yeah, right. But there, they're using the opportunity. Um, in some ways, it sounds like um, because the actual participant, identified patient, whatever you want to um, can't express, or has lost a part of their experience, which would, might make se help them make sense of things. Mm -hmm. um, it means that the rest of the support network needs to step up 
exactly. um, to communicate what the issue is and how they could help. They have to lend, lend themselves to that process. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that, that really, that really impressed me. And then after that meeting, I was leaving the hospital and there was, um, there was a young nurse who came up to me and said, I just want you to know, you know, this open dialogue thing really works. And she didn't have to do that. You know, this is somebody working on the front lines. Um, but she really, you know, uh, verified that from her point of view, this isn't just something, you know, the, the, elite doctors are imposing on them, but that everybody in the hospital seemed to really endorse this way of working and feel supported by it. Now, there has been some research on this. Um, yes. Not much, but a little, right? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Could you tell us about this and how effective these strategies are? Yeah. Well, what we have here is um, we have um, there, you know, there were, there were there outcome studies that they started to do in their own district. Um, and then there was a, what we call a quasi-experimental study, a comparison study of open, of, of Karaputis Hospital with two other centers in Finland. And they were all studying, um, first episode, uh, young people, 15 to 24, who were coming in, you know, with, quote, psychotic ideas. So, so these participants were young, and they, they were uh, first break. Yep. And they have um, two-year and, two and five-year follow-ups that are very, very close in terms of their statistics when they compare the open dialogue participants to the treatment-as-usual participants. And what they found, both after two and five years, um, and I'll just, you know, I'll just... Um, Kind of distill these statistics, but okay. <clears throat> a third of the a, a third of the um, patients at two years um, in the open dialogue group were on medication, and 100% in the treatment as usual group. At two years, 82% of open dialogue had no or mild had no symptoms or mild residual symptoms, and 50% of the treatment as usual group had had ongoing symptoms uh, or had, I'm sorry, had no symptoms. None of the open dialogue and? 82% of open dialogue had, uh, of open dialogue had no symptoms or mild residual symptoms. And 50% of the treatment as usual had no or mild symptoms, which meant 50% had ongoing Mm -hmm. symptoms. 23% of Open dialogue patients were on disability, in contrast to 57 percent. Um, That's a huge difference. Yeah. So 23 percent in open dialogue were getting government support, in contrast to almost 60 percent in the other group. And in the open dialogue group, 24 percent had relapses, in contrast to treatment as usual, and that was about 70 percent. So. You're describing in a in a and this is pretty large sample size, right? Yes, it's a pretty large sample size. Um, I think it's about there were about 80 p- participants. I think I was looking for that before our talk, and I, this is just from my memory. I couldn't find the exact number of the the exact n. I think there were 80, um, roughly 80 in each group. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Um, so. 
very, very substantial um, differences in um, disability, mm -hmm. amount of medication, um, relapse, and um, ongoing severe symptomatology or moder mo moderate right. symptomatology. Right. Um, with the use of and what was the comparator group? It was um, what was treatment as usual. Treatment as usual is defined by you know starting medication in the first meeting, and in contrast, open dialogue, they postponed the medication. They didn't start it. Um, they waited at least three meetings to make a decision about starting medication. So that would really be like three days if they're seeing the the participant and, and, and his or her family members and network um, every day. So they would wait three meetings. And, and um, so the idea was that they would wait um, to, to introduce neuroleptic medication. Even and, if the person was um, expressing some... Um, suicidality, but if they're in that treatment arm and they were safe in a hospital or being watched, then they might postpone it for the treatment meetings. Um, yes, the, they, this was so. This was actual research, so the, the participants had to agree to be part of it. Right. And the idea is that they would be kept safe, obviously, but that it was neuroleptic medication in particular that they would postpone. So if somebody hadn't slept in many days, they might get sleep medication. They may get other kinds of medication, but they wouldn't be given one of these neuroleptics at the first meeting. So um, that was a five-year study. I think that came out a bunch of years ago now. Um, yeah. About, um, have there been any further extension studies of this? Well, they have now. Um, they have now an additional. They have additional data. I think um, I just gave you the two-year follow-up. They have additional data on a five-year follow-up. Um, and it is very similar. I don't know, I was looking before the talk, whether that's actually come out in an article yet. I don't think they've actually published that yet, but I could be wrong. Okay. Well, let's come back after a short break. It's, what you're describing is, um, from those studies at least, um, a very profoundly different and effective model of care, which can profoundly increase um, functioning, um, like saving people from going on disability um, while reducing the amount of medication used and reducing symptomatology. So um, very, very meaningful results there. Um, talk to you in a minute. Okay. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
How many of us haven't felt ripped off at one time or another? Don't you wish you had some place to tune in for the answers? Join Jennifer Litwin every week on The Shop Cop. She'll take the time to explain real value and keep you away from the fraud that's out there in the shopping world. Jennifer has become the shopper's advocate, which means she can get you on the right track. Her guests are a who's who in the retail world. Don't get caught making a mistake in this down economy. Jennifer Litwin is here to help. The Shop Cop, live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness you're listening to one hour at a time with host mary woods if you have a question for mary or her guest call now the listener lines are open the toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792 that number again is 1-866-472-5792 now let's get back to mary and one hour at a time hello welcome back okay one hour at a time hi mary hi um so all right, so you're describing the, some of the outcome studies, and um, in the break we were reviewing some of the five-year studies which um, had similar, very optimistic outcomes. And I think it bears saying that um, this speaks to something we talk a lot about on this show, that um, psychotic disorders and schizophrenic diagnoses do not mean um, a life um, of disability and poor functioning, and that perhaps um, somewhere between, you know, 40 and 60% of people do great. And, um, and um, that's been shown in um, America as well as, other, as, well as Finland. Um, and what we're busy trying to figure out is what makes the difference. Mm-hmm. You're talking a lot about um, family and psychosocial approaches. And, you know, in this country we've had a lot of emphasis on, and, and Westbridge I think is really on the forefront of this, the use of evidence-based practices including... Mm-hmm behavioral family therapies and vocational rehabilitation and you know, Westbridge is um, an assertive community treatment team which works very collaboratively with the family um, around their personalized achievement agendas um, to, uh, and are always involved in this very um, interactive um, process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in the behavioral family therapy model, um, there's a lot of emphasis on both education of the family in a um, sh- so that people can get into a shared model, mm-hmm. as well as decreasing some of the um, difficult communication patterns that you often see uh, arising in psychotic in families where um, there's someone with a psychosis. So mm-hmm. see a lot of critical commentaries and hostility within the family it used to be described as expressed emotion right. emerges as a very powerful predictor of outcome um, rather than necessarily onset. But, um, and then that got distilled down a bit to hostile. 
style and critical comments which can arise of course when someone's terribly exasperated um, or scared um, um, or feel, rendered feeling helpless but when 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 someone in the family is very very ill right. um, and it, it, your your the approach you're describing doesn't quite so explicitly work around those communication patterns, right? It doesn't, you know, in, in the behavioural family models, you you label them and you alter them and you teach people different ways of communicating collaboratively. But that's a different approach in in what you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, again, you know, this the open dialogue approach is a started as a way of integrating the treatment system. And but they would refer people uh, to you know individual therapy or family therapy, and then the family therapist would then be part of the treatment team. So it's not that they would be they would be against behavioral family therapy. It's just that within the context of the treatment team, that's not the focus. Um, it's not so much. I, I mean, it sounds very useful, and in fact. The Finns are very, very aware, and they've been influenced by the literature on EE, and and I think that's part of the reason for the emphasis in the treatment meeting on on safety and you know trying to reduce anxiety in in the meeting um, and create a very tolerant and respectful atmosphere. So they're not. They're not doing family therapy. They're not trying to do something to change the dynamics in the in the therapy because it's this this sort of crisis based model where you're trying to come up with a common understanding about how to go forward. Mm-hmm. But as I said, it becomes like the you know the center of the treatment, and then you've got these spokes that go out, and they may refer somebody to you know uh, family therapy or individual therapy or occupational therapy or. Whatever. So this would be a short-term model, you know, in behavior, right? I mean, behavior right. family therapy that we we would use at Westbridge, um, it's a it's a curriculum, but it goes on for um, several months. Um, but um, this would be crisis-oriented um, and really working with people in the midst of um, their communication challenges. Yeah, I think I, I think I, I there was a little glitch. I, I didn't quite hear the end of it. What, what did you say? I'm sorry. Um, that there's that this that the open dialogue approach really works with people in the midst of a crisis where exactly. they find it difficult to communicate their their concerns. Exactly, but you know, again, you know, the the psychoeducational approaches and open dialogue converge around this idea of of um, seeing everybody as being potential partners in a recovery process. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that, that's part of a whole um, wave of thinking, um, or it's not really thinking, it's like remembering uh, mm-hmm. but that um, people need to be active participants in their own lives, um, and um, that that's really the definition of recovery, and you have to help someone regain their sense of identity and autonomy um, and connection with people who care about them. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you see as the... Um, um, you know, you, you, you've, you've commented a lot around this work in Finland, but what's going on um, as regards the United States with this? What's the obstacles to this being introduced more? Um, what do you see as the new directions and opportunities here? Well, I think there's, you know, I think there's actually a very encouraging climate to introduce these ideas in the U.S. because of the work that's been done in the wraparound movement 
and the systems of care ideas that have been introduced and have taken root really in the public sector. And those are community-based models. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the people here I've, ha- I've found, researchers and clinicians who are most interested and receptive to open dialogue, are often people who've been working with their wraparound approaches and can see that the wraparound needs a kind of acute crisis intervention piece to it that could really enhance a system of care approach. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounds like we're coming towards the end of the show. I hear, I hear the music playing for us. <laughs> um, I think it's a, a very interesting idea because in the midst of a crisis, I think even the wraparound services tend to fall back on um, a, approaches which can be um, can leave the participant in crisis out a little bit. So yeah. I think you're really reminding us that there's an alternative to stepping up that sort of um, involvement, network involvement at that point. Exactly. Hey, Mary, it's been great to have you as a guest. I, I've learned a lot about open dialogues, and I hope to um, continue that kind of dialogue with you myself another time. Well, it's been a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Take care. Okay, take care. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.